It's been, it's been an interesting week for me. I started out the week in Pennsylvania, so that's where I was last Sunday on uh, responsibilities for our district, the Central Florida District Church of the Nazarene, and I missed you guys last week. I imagine that I probably missed you far more than you missed me because we have such a great youth pastor who did such a great job and heard such good things. But having missed you, and then, uh, and then I return immediately and uh, get started on working on funeral preparations for Cindy's mom, and uh, in that process was just overwhelmed by the way our church gathered around their family and cared for them and, and did so many great things to, to help the process of funeral week, which is such a big deal and such a hard thing to go through. I, I just sort of emerged out of this last week with great pride to be a part of this church. It's, it's a bummer when I'm not here. It's a group of people that care and love for each other in great ways. I was very proud to be a part of this church. I want to say to you, yay church, good job. You guys are worth it. You're wonderful and great, and, and you've done great things this week, but you do that every week. It just so happens with my out-of-touchness, I really noticed it this week. And so I just want to say uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the way that you are and the way that you care for each other and how it was so clearly on display this week. Uh, the process isn't over for Cindy and Angela and the family. Make sure you ask them how they're doing and you give them hugs and love them and all that kind of stuff. You know, you don't just uh, bury a loved one and then give up your grief. So make sure you continue to love them and demonstrate your care for them if you would. Um, okay, I think that's all I have to say before I start the sermon. Okay, good. I have a picture to show you. Can I see the picture, Debbie? Who knows what that is? This is audience participation portion. Anyone know what this is? Yeah, you see, people who are in the first service in my family is all that's ever heard of this. I can't believe it. You guys have never seen this before. No? No, you're confused. This is a very famous sign in England particularly in London. This sign is all across the British subway. Yeah, she's, she, she doesn't count. She's my wife. Nicole said it? Was that you? I thought it was Cherise cheating. I'm sorry, it just came from the wrong angle. Nicole, Nicole, you are the winner of today because you're the only person not related to me that has known this all day. So, so anyways, this is in the British subway. Mind the gap. And it's literally referring to uh, the fact that there's a space between the subway and the sidewalk. You know what I'm saying? It can't come in and like grate against the sidewalk or the concrete there, else it would mess up the train. So there's always going to be a space. And so they put this sign up all throughout subways, mind the gap. So when you walk in, you see that, and you remember not to put your foot in the hole between the cement and the, uh, the, uh, the actual subway that's there. Okay, makes sense. Mind the gap. It's very English when you think about it, isn't it? Mind the gap. Mind the gap. But, but then I think, I think it's funny, you imagine that people won't notice where to stick their foot, but you imagine that people will actually notice this sign. In fact, Larry Heckathorn comes up to me after the first service, for those of you that know him, and he says, I've been to London twice and been all throughout the London subway, and I've never seen that thing before. Well, I'm just happy that he hasn't put his foot in the gap. You see? Mind the gap. You see... There are things that are happening all around us that we don't notice if we're not paying attention. Sometimes we need these signs to point out to us what's going on. There's a gap. Be careful. Don't put your foot here. And surely they put those signs up because someone put their foot in the gap one day and probably got taken off with the train. Right? 
We need signs sometimes in our life to tell us what's really going on, what to pay attention to, what to mind so that we don't get ourselves in trouble. We need help. Well, there are signs like this all around us as well. There are signs all around us. Do we pay attention to them, though? We have people in our lives, in our communities, committing suicide. People who are depressed. People who are angry. People who are filled with hatred. People who are filled with unkindness. People who are gossips. These are signs. They're signs. They're like the mind of the gap sign. But when we come across these people who are in such bad shape, we usually just turn around and talk bad about them. Did you see how unkind that waitress was? Did you know that person's gossiping about me in the church again? We don't take them as signs. We take them as affronts. But they're signs. They're signs that all around us, all around us, is death. People heading towards their own death, feeling death inside of their very lives. They're not filled with life. They're not filled with joy. They're not filled with kindness. They're slowly marching their way to death. Now answer this question for me. When someone is really, really happy, okay, imagine that. Someone is really happy. Like you sit down at the IHOP and the waitress comes up and she seems like she's had eight cups of coffee. You know the lady I'm talking about? You notice that, don't you? That's weird to have someone that happy come talk to you. Am I right? It's okay. You guys can at least nod your head or shake it. No, you can tell me. I don't know what I'm talking about. This is all right. Maybe we'll get you some of that coffee just to kind of pep you up a little bit. I could probably get Jeffrey to head out and make us some good brew, right, Jeffrey? People, (laughs) Jeffrey is English. I'm surprised you didn't know the mind the gap sign, Jeffrey. Come on now. People are dying all around us. And the Catholic Church in uh, the early years identified seven things that they called the seven deadly sins. And since I know most of you watch Brad Pitt movies, you probably know what the seven deadly sins are. Right? Okay. The seven deadly sins are this. Wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, and gluttony. All right? You all heard these before? What's interesting about these things is not one of them, not one of them, puts you to death because you've done it. Can you imagine how much trouble you'd be in if uh, one day you were gluttonous and you died because of it? Or one day you were a little lustful and that puts you to death? That would be a rough day. I just imagine that based on these seven things, we'd, none of us would be here if they just put you immediately to death, Right? We've all struggled with one or, you know, five of them, right? It's the seven deadly sins. So what's the issue with these deadly sins? They don't put you to death. They don't kill you. But the seven of them slowly drag you to your own death, don't they? They reach in and they grab a hold of you and they twist and they pull and they soon be, before long they own you. And when they begin to own you, they begin to start lifting your casket and dragging you off to the graveyard. The seven deadly sins. Wrath, or simply put, anger. Anger. Greed. Laziness. Pride. Lust. Envy. Gluttony. These sort of sins begin to own us and bring us to our own death. The story we're going to read today is a story of death. 
And it's found in Luke 7, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. And before I read that to you, let me tell you a story that predates this, all the way back to the book of 1 Kings. There was a boy who had died. And the mother was grieving heavily over the death of her boy. And the prophet Elijah sees this boy dead and off to the graveyard. And the prophet Elijah wants to make something happen. He's overwhelmed by the death too. So he goes to this dead boy and he lays on top of him. That's a little weird. And let me tell you, if you are Jewish, you do not touch dead bodies. So this is an audacious move by Elijah. He gets off. And he climbs back on the dead boy. He gets off, and the third time he climbs back on top of the dead boy until he jumps off, and the dead boy is alive. And everyone begins to celebrate. Bringing dead boys to life is what prophets do. Okay? Now fast forward to Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. The people are dying for a word from God. They haven't heard from a prophet in 300 years. They haven't seen a prophet raise someone from the dead in 900 years. This is a barren and dry spiritual life. The people are living as Jews and are distant from God, but they're thirsty and hungry that God will move in a new way. Enter Jesus into the town of Nain in Israel. Would you stand with me as we read his story this morning? Starting with verse 11 in chapter 7. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet, great prophet, has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. You may be seated. So just like with the story of Elijah, we have a boy who's dead and a mother who's a widow grieving the death here. She's overwhelmed with sadness because she has lost her only provider in life. She has lost her only family, perhaps her only friend. Chances are that these pallbearers aren't just relatives or friends of the family. In this time at funerals, often the different pieces would be rented. So these pallbearers carrying the coffin aren't even friends. They're likely just townspeople who specialize in death. And so they're carrying her son, her only connection back to life, her only bit of family. You could almost say her very reason for living is being walked off to the graveyard right in front of her. Today is a day of grief, but what is tomorrow going to look like? It'll likely be filled with loneliness, perhaps more death. And so this is the scene that Jesus is sitting on the side of the road. He doesn't know these people, but he sees the procession heading down the road. 
and he sees a mother all alone with no family with their arms around her, wailing and screaming and tears pouring down her face. And Jesus is moved into action. He walks up to the mother and says, Don't cry. Who says don't cry at a funeral? Who says that? What are you doing, Jesus? You're being insensitive? Surely he has something next planned in order to to do this, right? I mean, he himself, when his friend Lazarus dies, it's recorded that he weeps. Crying happens at a funeral. But Jesus sees the tears of his people, the people he loves, and he tells them, don't cry, because he has a plan. He leaves the mother and he turns to the casket. He walks past rented pallbearers and stops right between them and puts his hand on a casket. Imagine this scene, if you would, for a minute. An uninvited guest to the funeral walks up to a casket being, having a processional through town and begins to lay his hands on the casket. They haven't seen a prophet in 900 years, and they haven't heard from God in 300. They're not expecting a prophetic act here. They're just seeing a loony man touching a casket in the middle of the city. The pallbearers don't immediately stop until Jesus comes and touches the casket and seems as though he's got something to do. And he says simply, boy, get up. And those pallbearers holding the casket of a boy from town who has died likely hears on the inside a little bit of rattling, maybe an elbow moving and hitting the edge, a knee moving and popping the other side. There was death when they put the stone on top of this casket, and yet now they begin to hear the sounds of life moving from the inside. And before long, people come over and pull off the top of the casket and up stands that boy who just minutes ago was dead. And Jesus takes him and brings him to his mother to give him back. What an amazing story that's happened here. And the people begin to say, people begin to talk. You know, it's amazing. Big things don't happen. Miracles don't happen without people talking, right? Did you, did you hear what happened in the city streets? That, that widow's boy died, and I mean, I just saw him. He's running the streets again. He's alive. When miracles happen, people begin to talk. And what are the people saying? They're saying, a great prophet has come to help us. They're saying, he's come to his people, and news about Jesus spread throughout the country, and the people begin to praise God because they saw a miracle happen. We don't live in this world anymore where we get to see Jesus come and put his hands on caskets. We don't get to see that anymore. We're sort of in a world that's almost dark. It's hard to see where God is acting. Yesterday I went to Disney, and I went for the first time on Space Mountain. Have you all been on Space Mountain before? All right, so let me preface this story by telling you that I hate roller coasters, okay? I hate roller coasters. 
And I thought Space Mountain was going to be okay. Sharice had been on Space Mountain when she was a kid, so I said, am I going to be okay on Space Mountain? And she's like, yeah, I remember that it was kind of cool, but I don't remember much about it. I was like, but are there drops? Is it fast? She's like, I don't remember. She was lying to me. I'm telling you, she was lying to me. She wanted to get me on that ride. This is what she does. She doesn't tell me the whole truth until after my hair is standing in the air and I've got perspiration stains from my armpit to my waist. She doesn't tell me until after that. She waits. And, she, and then, then we had just finished dinner too. And she has the nerve to tell me right before we get on and I'm sitting behind her. Don't puke on me. You see, they laugh because they know you're being mean. They know. And so anyways, I go on Space Mountain. And, and I had no idea what to expect. I had no clue what this was. I'd heard people talk about Space Mountain, but when they talk about roller coasters, like if you want to come and tell me about your roller coaster and how fun it was, I'm tuned out because I don't care. Okay? I hate those things so much. So people tell me about roller coasters. I have no idea what I'm in for for Space Mountain. But I figure it's the Magic Kingdom, which is for little kids, and so I figure this is going to be a kiddie ride. Next thing I know, next thing I know, I'm flying at like 60 miles an hour into absolute darkness. I couldn't see a thing, except every once in a while, what I swear was roller coaster tracks like a foot above my head that I was ducking to get out of the way of. I have no idea what was happening in that place, except that I was going left and right, and sometimes both at the same time, up and down, slow and then fast, and the whole time I'm like, what is happening to my body right now? What is going on? I don't even know where I am, until finally I saw lightness and it w- light, and it was all over. <sighs> but I survived it. And now, I could just be honest and tell you about how brave and wonderful I was, but I was really afraid of the picture at the end. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so we got out. I was acting as brave as I could in front of my wife because even though we've been married for 10 years, I still have to act like a man. I was all right. I was all right. And we get there, and the pictures start, you know, changing from screen to screen, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, what is it going to be a picture of? What is it going to be a picture of? And finally, my picture came up, and I was smiling so big, it was unbelievable. I don't know when I was smiling during that whole thing, but Cherie says, well, you look happy. (laughs) Oh, yes, I do look happy. Yes. Yes. I really did look happy. I don't know at which point they got me looking like that, but I just looked like I was having the time of my life. But it was, it was really interesting, though, because, because really, I, I imagine if, if Space Mountain is just out in the light, and I could have inspected that whole thing and seen it, I don't think it would have bothered me at all. I, I really don't. What I really hate in roller coasters, and this is the honest truth, is those like 90-foot drops where you're just going straight down. That's the part of roller coasters that I loathe. I hate that. So if you're going to bring me on a roller coaster and I look and I can see the top right past the sun, I'm not going on that thing, okay? I'm not going on that roller coaster. But these ones that just go fast and turn in circles, that doesn't bother me at all, and I'll go on that. If I could have inspected Space Mountain, I probably would have gone and not been afraid at all. I like those kind of things. It was fun because it never really had this big drop. But because it was so dark and I couldn't see anything, I was terrified the whole time, the entire time. And I was just as tense as could be what life is like for some people in this world. Their life is just dark, and it's tense. They can't see what's coming next, and so they're just filled with things that are kind of bitter and angry. 
These type of people are no fun to be around. But let's be honest, these people are, are filled with sin often. The seven deadly sins. Let me remind you of them once again before I sort of begin to wrap this up. Wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, and gluttony. How about those things? Those sins are massive sins, but so many of them are just things we sort of accept as personality traits in one another. If you are the type of person that struggles with one of these seven deadly sins, I want to say this to you. People around you notice. People around you notice. It's not like you can hide one of these sins. If you're the type of person who is an envious person, the person who works next to you knows that you're filled with envy. They know that every time that uh, they bring in their new Apple product, that you act like you wish you had gotten it first. They know that every time you talk about how you had a great meal with your family, they know that you wish that they had been there and had a better one and a bigger one. If you're the type of person that struggles with anger and wrath, the people in, around you, they know that you're an angry person. Your spouse knows that you're angry. They know it. It's not confusing to them or surprise. The people you work with, the people you go to church with, if you struggle with anger, people around you notice that you struggle with that sort of thing. You see, imagine for a second, well, let me get to that later, but if you're pride, whatever, people know that you struggle with these sins. You can't hide these sins. But these sins are slowly bringing you to death. Slowly and painfully bringing you to death. They're eking you into a dark room where you can't see any way out. And for those of us, many of us that struggle with these sort of sins, we say, well, I don't really know how to deal with my anger. You just sort of enter into a dark place, and you don't know which way to turn. But these things are like pallbearers that pick up your casket and parade you right through town for everyone to see. They see that you, angry, lustful, and prideful, are being brought by those things right to your graveyard. People can see this. These sins parade you before the world. But, as you hit the town square, wherever you are in life, you may just now be being brought into the town square where Jesus sits and is having a loaf of bread and coffee with his disciples. And he sees that these sins have grabbed a hold of your life and are dragging you slowly to your death. Jesus sees that. He looks right at you and sees how you're struggling. He sees the hurt and the darkness in your life. He sees that you don't know whether to turn right or left, if you're going to go up or down. He sees that you're filled with anger and envy. He sees that you're filled with lust and pride and gluttony and sloth. He sees these things. And Jesus is willing to walk right up to your casket that's being brought slowly by the death that owns you. And he's willing to walk up to your casket and bring life to what's bringing you to your death. He sees just as much as everyone else does the sin that you're struggling with. There's really no hiding our sin Somebody knows our sin, and surely our Lord and Savior does as well. 
but he doesn't judge. Right before it's time for us to go into the graveyard and be put down as hopeless, Jesus steps up to our casket and puts his hands on it and says, listen, why don't you just get up and live? We have an option at this point. We can be slaves to the pallbearers that are bringing our life to death. We can allow that envy and that pride and that lust to continue to own our lives and drag us to our deaths. Or we could hear the voice of a Savior saying, there is life for you to be had. Stand up and walk and live in me. Jesus is prepared and ready to turn your life around. If there's sin that you're struggling with, that does not have to be how people know you. You do not have to be that sin. Jesus can transform that sin. Now, a lot of that is simple sort of stuff, but let me make this a little more difficult. A lot of you have heard the story before of Jesus and how he can uh, forgive you of your sins and transform your life. What I'm interested in this story that we read today is how a dead person coming to life led everyone to talk about Jesus. People began praising God again in a new way because life was brought out of death. People began to tell one another about Jesus and what he's done because life had been brought out of death. This sermon series that's starting today is called Equipped, and the subtitle is How to Be Christian in 2012 because it's kind of hard to figure out what to do. And today, I'm going to talk to you about sharing your faith. You see, today it seems that evangelism is all about being loud, yelling a lot, getting on the news. I remember uh, when I went to a baseball game when I first moved here in Tampa. I don't, I, it was a Red Sox game too, so I was really excited. I remember very little about the game, except that we beat the Yankees because we usually do. But I remember as we walked around the, the bridge that goes over Dale Mabry, I remember a man standing at the bottom with a bullhorn, screaming and hollering into it, telling me and everyone I was walking with that I was on my way to hell and that I needed to repent. This was his idea of evangelism, screaming at me. And frankly, I was embarrassed. I wanted nobody to know that I also thought I was a Christian just like this crazy guy was. I wanted to go to him and hand over my pastor card and say, listen, if this is what it's all about, I'm not interested. I was just being yelled at. Since the 80s, roughly, evangelism has been all about saying, I have acquired something, it's better than what you've got, and let me give it to you. Jesus has forgiven me my sin, and look what a miserable wreck your life is. He can transform that and make you as great as me. That's not exactly the language, but that's what the world hears today when you say that sort of thing. That's what the world hears today. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. That's what they're hearing with those models of evangelism, particularly people who are distant from the church. But let's look at this story here. How is it that people's lives are being transformed? How is it that the word of Jesus is getting out? And why is it that people begin to praise God? It's because Jesus brings life to death and people notice. So I invite you today to name the things that are bringing you to your death. Is it something like lust? Do you struggle with that? Is it pride? Is it 
laziness? What are the sins that are dragging you towards your death? Don't be afraid to name them within your own heart and mind right now. Now imagine for a second that your sin that you really struggled with was pride. Let's just imagine that. Now imagine that you came today to the altar at the end of the service and you prayed that God took away your pride. Now, if you are a prideful person on Friday, you left work and everyone was glad you left because all they hear you talk about is yourself, how great you are, how if you wrote a book, a million people would buy it, how one day you're going to uh, be a rock star and everyone's going to come and watch your uh, shows, how, uh, how if only that they would work harder, they could do your job as well as you do, that all these sort of things. People know that you're prideful if you struggle with pride. And when you turn around and left, people breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> now just imagine today, you laid your sin of pride on the altar, and you begged Jesus to come to your casket and bring life to a place where once pride was killing you. And you went back to work on Monday, and instead of talking about how awesome you were, you walked up to your neighbor and you asked them, how was your weekend? And then you listened to their story. And you never interrupted it by talking about yourself. Imagine that you went home today and had a meal with your spouse, and you wanted to talk about them and what their week looked like. Imagine you told them about how great they were instead of telling them about how great you were. And you started gathering these patterns in life. People would start noticing that you were different. You were once very prideful and very hard to be around, and now you're kind of likable. People will eventually start asking you, what changed in your life? What in the world is different about you? Why, why is it that you're being like this instead of like you used to be? And it would give you an opportunity to say, Jesus Christ brought life to once there was death in my life. I used to be a prideful person, and I used to sin against you and my family and my friends all the time by being so prideful. But my life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Now in this story, when death is brought to life, people begin to praise God. In our dark world today, when life is brought into places of darkness, where we were once sinners and people notice a transformation, they ask questions. Why are you different? Why have you changed? Why are you different than everyone else? Why are you happy now? Why is it that you're no longer that lustful person talking about every woman that walks by? Why are you no longer that lazy person that we've always known? Why is it that things are different with you? And you can say, Jesus Christ has done something powerful in my life. And he can do something powerful in yours as well. You see how that's different than having an arrogant attitude and saying, I've got something great you should have it too. It's allowing the world to see that Jesus still brings life to death, and he's done it in me. And if you're interested in why I am this way, I can show you how. Evangelism in 2012 doesn't work with arrogance and bravado and noise. Evangelism works in relationship. And it works by humbling ourselves now and allowing God continually to transform us. Because if we're different than the world is, people will not want to know why. 
and they will be open at that moment to hearing why you have been transformed. So today, at the end of the service, as our musicians come, imagine for a moment that you're the one lying in that casket, being slowly walked to the graveyard. Sin brings about death in our life. It brings it about slowly, but before long, we're surrounded by darkness, and we don't know where to go. In your own heart right now, name your pallbearers. What is it that's dragging you to your own death? What is it that's keeping you from where you are, away from the life abundant in Jesus Christ? What is keeping you from the fruits of the Spirit? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Why is it instead that we're owned by pride and lust, by laziness and greed? Name in your own life what it is that's dragging you to your own death. And I invite you today, for the sake of your own life and for the sake of the world, to be open to bringing your pallbearers to the altar today and laying them down and asking Christ to transform your life so that through you he can transform your world. Don't be afraid to come and pray today. The world is remarkably like Space Mountain. Technology everywhere, the future is coming faster than it ever has. It's dark, it's fast, it's confusing, it's difficult, it's tense. Just imagine what that world would look like with humble, transformed people showing up to people on the express train to the future, just saying, an alternative to this dark busyness. There's a different way. God has done something big in my life. Come join the adventure with me. But you can't just say it in 2012. No one believes the words that come out of anyone's mouth in 2012. We are cynical and we have good reason to be. People are looking at our lives. And if we say that Jesus transforms lives, our life better indicate to them that Jesus has transformed our life. Has he transformed your life yet? There is no witness in 2012 without laying down the sin of our life and being transformed. But man, is Jesus ready to do that. He sees your funeral procession walking right past him, and he's ready to put a halt to it. Don't go another day without him speaking words of life into you and sending you out to speak words of life into a dark world. Would you stand with me as we pray a prayer of dismissal? Lord, we pray for those that have come forward today. But we pray for also for those who sit in their seats and have begun to name pallbearers in their life. Death is no fun to think about, God, but we know that you want to bring life into this life. Lord, for those of us that are dying slowly and softly, 
For those of us that are sinning more than we are not sinning, breathe life into us now, O God. We so badly want to be remade in your image. We so badly want to be your servant. Oh God, bring life to us now. Put to death the sin that is carrying us to our graveyard and instead raise us to new life. God, we want to be expressions of your life into this world. Bring us the transformation necessary so that we can indeed live in your light and in your life and bring your light and your life to this world. In your name we pray, amen. You are dismissed. Go from this place telling the story of how God has transformed your life.